to the Brothers Book Club podcast, another solo episode in our Penguin Little Black Classics review set. Uh, I am Travis. Ryan is not on the other end of the line, though I thought I'd build up a little more suspense than that. He is still out on paternity leave, doing quite well, he and his wife both, and their, you know, beautiful little daughter. She's doing great. Already a Liverpool football club fan, but we'll have to address that when Ryan comes back. And so it's just me again this week. I'm going to continue solo podcast reviewing these little Penguin Black Classic kind of world literature collection. And today we are up with an episode on a Rudyard Kipling collection called The Gate of the Hundred Sorrows. We will see just how grim and sorrowful this podcast becomes, uh, hopefully and probably not too terribly much, though we'll dig into that in one second. I think I'm going to keep experimenting with the format also. I'm using uh, this solo podcasting time as sort of an excuse to try out different formats. Last week, if you listened, I did an episode that was entirely or, you know, essentially entirely scripted. And I think it went pretty well. The only major issue was on my end, and it was a simple issue, a simple math uh, calculation issue, which is that it took me a lot more time to write out and... (laughs) prepare the sort of essay style or essay format episode and it didn't pay off in a longer episode you know it was only 15 minutes which I kind of liked it was very brief I don't you know if you listened you knew that already but I don't know if it was worth it just based on how long it normally takes me to outline thoughts for an episode and then just sort of go based on those versus entirely scripting something Apparently the ratio is just off, so I'm not going to script this episode. I thought about it and then looked back and thought, yeah, that took a lot longer to write that out. Writing, as it turns out, is a burdensome task and takes forever and is, you know, you do a lot of editing and we do editing on the podcast too, but it's just not the same. It's not quite as taxing. So I'm going back to a similar format as usual. I'm going to sort of outline and then walk through and talk through some different points based on the text. Although I am going to put in one wrinkle this week and try something a little different. I am going to structure the podcast around essential questions. I've chosen five, and I have even one more kind of little detail to put in there to give you as sort of a preface to this episode, and that is that I am going to base these five questions on what I think a reader would want to know if they only read... Kipling's Wikipedia page. We often on this podcast joke about, or no, I don't even think it's joking, really. It's sincere on my part. We jokingly or sincerely use Wikipedia as a quick source just to check on things, check for pronunciations, among other things. You probably, if you listen, know we struggle with those sometimes. And I just thought it would be most relevant to maybe myself or our audience to look through that article on Kipling, which is pretty extensive. A lot of Wikipedia articles are weirdly extensive, uh, at least in my experience. And so I'm going to, I I read through that whole thing, his entire article, and after finishing it, I wrote down five questions that I thought were most related to the contents of that Wikipedia article, and that I also thought, and this is a crucial second detail, 
could be answered with the collection that Penguin has assembled, which is number one, right off the top, entirely short stories, and a lot of Wikipedia's entries and details are about his um, his poetry writing. And this is that we have is entirely prose, which might end up being a pretty key distinction, I suppose. But, you know, I guess I'll talk through that. And so that's what we're doing. To briefly summarize that lengthy explanation, I read through Kipling's entire Wikipedia page. I have shortened it to essentially five crucial questions that I think someone also reading that page would have, you know, wondering about him. And I'm going to answer them uh, right here, right now. Sadly, again, alone. Ryan's not along for this ride, though maybe we'll revisit this format in the future. Until such a time, though, let's dig into some Kipling. So I think, and I've always kind of liked this expression, but I think we have to start with the classic, classic truism and piece of wisdom, which is don't start the show with the showstopper. But I think in the case of Rudyard Kipling, you have to start with the showstopper, which is, is or was, Kipling's long deceased, but was this man a racist or an imperialist or both? I think it is the essential question when you arrive at the end of the uh, Wikipedia summary of him. There's a maybe a, a too short part about his imperialist leanings and current interpretations of his work and his place in the canon. So this is the first question I think that I have to address. Uh, the answer is, I mean, yes, right? It has to be yes to both, probably. Um, this is where context matters, and I... I don't know. I don't mean to be one of those people um, who immediately leaps to context, though context always matters. It's always the thing. Whether you're reading something historical or current, there are always contextual considerations to, you know, to take. And I think, of course, when you're reading someone like Kipling, that's essential, though. Is there any context that we really need around uh, Take Up the White Man's Burden, which is, you know, probably his most infamous poem for at least a modern scholar or a modern reader, or The White Man's Burden is the title of it. This is the only time I'll refer to things not in the collection, so Penguin did not refer to or reference The White Man's Burden in their collection, but let me pluck a couple lines from that poem, just for, you know, clarity on, I think, his views. He uh, tells people that their sons are going to be in, quote, exile, uh, waiting on and dealing with fluttered folk in, in the wild, which is how he would characterize people in lands that England would, you know, just visit, just paying a little imperialist visit to. Uh, there's a veil thread of terror. Uh, there, It's a prideful act. It, you know, it, to any of his credit, if he gets any, he does talk about how it should be a selfless act. He's, you're going to profit uh, another person or give that person your, your profit, your knowledge, which is really some strong white saviorism in uh, 2019, if I've ever heard any. And I just think, I'm not going to read through the whole poem, I was just plucking some lines, but I just don't think that's able to be misinterpreted. And I think, I don't know of any current historical even a textbook or just anything. I, I sometimes delve into like world history still in some of the tutoring I do. And there's just no current curriculum I've seen that would paint imperialism as a great deed done with gifts bestowed and in goodness uh, given to native peoples. It's just a, yeah, that poem is just a wild mischaracterization of the effects of imperialism throughout the 18th and 19th centuries and even before and so, I, yeah, he's clearly an imperialist. Now, let me dive into the text that Penguin presented and answer some of the racial questions. 
One of the stories, more than the others, directly deals with with racial observation, and he does offload them onto a narrator who is a, quote, half-caste opium addict. That is the narrator of the story. Um, And so I don't know, obviously, if we were in some kind of seminar, we'd have to make something of that narrator. But just to be clear, the narrator in this story is not an Englishman, is not an imperialist directly. He's like a a native native of India and uh, is in the caste system. He makes observations like the following, quote, I'm 42, a yellow man, meaning a man of East Asia, uh, probably China based on the story, but he says a yellow man is made different. Opium doesn't tell on him scarcely at all, but white and black folks, I added the folks, but white and black suffer a great deal, which is his interpretation of, uh, you know, different opium, uh, proficiency, I suppose you could say. The narrator in that same story later says that of the opium den he prefers, quote, the nephew, the new guy running it, dare not get a white or for that matter, a mixed skin into the place, which is his commentary on how the place has declined in quality. I've also taken out some quotes there that have just straight up racist language um, about African immigrants. You don't even need to guess the language. You already know it. I'm just going to retract it. I see no point in reading it that way, but I think you get the gist. I don't know if it's fair to put those beliefs, of course, onto Kipling. The interaction between an author and and the author's narrators is complicated and, again, requires pretty considered analytical thinking. Um, And I know on our podcast, we like to dabble in some analytical thinking, but there's definitely some racial coding and language in the work. Um, If this text or these short stories present him as an imperialist, which... I think it fairly does. He he does have English characters in India, as was you know reflects his life and how he was brought up. He was born there, uh, but if he wasn't imperialist, he was an apathetic one at best. At least in this collection, one of the first quotes you get from one of these short stories is that quote: "Good work in India does not matter because a man is judged by his worst output, and another man takes all the credit of his best as a rule." Bad work does not matter, because other men do worse, and incompetence hang on longer in India than anywhere else. And in Kipling's defense, in that quote, he is referring to Englishmen, people there from Imperial Britain, to do work and manage the continent and manage their vast empire and yada yada. And it just seems like a place with refuse and cast-offs and just real lethargy, uh, lethargic energy in India at the time. I think there are loads of moments in the text that we would today categorize or call othering. I believe that's still a preferred like sociological term for it. Um, exoticism would be another like he you know he portrays some things as quite exotic in the in the sociological term. Um, there's a quote where he says, "In ordinary ears, in English ears, the tale was only an interesting bit of folklore." Uh, clearly differentiating there between you know what is ordinary or English, you know proper civilized etc., and then what would be native to India. And in another quote, he says, The heaven-born, which is how an Englishman is referred to, set no particular store by it, but what of what use was a polo ball to a kit mudgar, which I'm sure I just just butchered that pronunciation, but I did look up that term, and a kit mudgar is like a servant, essentially, like a low-caste servant uh, would be a person who was born in India, an Indian person. And so they're just terminology, you know, the ordinary reference calling English imperialists heaven born that would just code extremely heavily into othering and is clearly portraying superiority of one group, uh, one you know racial group over another. 
And, and so I think this question is pretty clearly answered. Uh, Kipling had his defenders, according to Wikipedia, his Wikipedia page, he had his defenders in his day saying, you know, and claiming, of course, that he was not an imperialist, he was not a racist. I just think history today would be a 2019 reader, such as yourself out there, 20-whatever, whenever you're listening to this, will probably be far less kind. I I just think the definitions and the goalposts have moved, to use that expression, um, largely for the better. That's how history goes. Things, time continues, social expectations change, and Kipling's work does not, it's not quite as egregious as maybe his reputation preceding him would lead you to believe, but it's there. And I mean, hopefully the quotes that I just gave sort of uh, help you understand and examine that. So I think that's a pretty good answer to question one. Let's transition to another question that I think is the most related, and that is, how does Kipling depict India then? It is the land of his birth. He was born in what was then Bombay, and then was shipped back to England for boarding school. He failed, apparently, according to Wikipedia, to get into Oxford on a scholarship. I mean, which, you know, sympathy, I, I suppose, for that. It can't be easy at any in any time period to get into Oxford on any scholarship, so understandable, maybe the most relatable part about his life to, to us 2019 folk. So he doesn't get into Oxford, and then he comes back to India for a long time, embeds himself as a writer, writes for four or five different newspapers, journals, whatever, magazines, and spends time there, quite a bit of time, just growing, learning, and writing. So I think this point about how what his relationship to India is, is pretty rich. Even in these short stories, just interpreting through the narrators he presents and the sort of happenings in the stories, this is probably the most interesting question that Penguin's collection could address. And I think right off the top, India is not portrayed favorably, certainly. It often feels like a place of waste, decadence, of of a sort, a kind of decadence, like a mystical decadence, and it's a place of ill for the characters. It's usually things are going tragically, people are unwell, you know, people are being cheated or scammed, or the the sort of mystical, I gotta come up with a better word than that, Um, but that's in one of the stories, there's just an object of ancient power that has you know, influence over characters, and so it just feels like, you know, a foreign othered place that feels dangerous to a degree, and if it's not dangerous then it's sort of deteriorating the English characters there's a quote again on page three that right away sums up what I think the, the sort of view is from some of the Englishmen in the stories and it says, quote Nothing matters here except home furlough and acting allowances, and these because they are scarce. It is a slack country where all men work with imperfect instruments. So sort of offloading their imperialist criticisms onto the natives, in a sense. I suppose it could be criticism of their own efforts, but it definitely didn't feel that way. And there is also, in that classic sense of the word oriental, not the, like, your grandfather or grandmother at Christmas saying the wrong term in 2019, um, but in that classic sense of, like, exoticism of the Orient, you know, that 18th century, 19th century interacting, interactivity sort of word, it, it does have that otherness, that othering, um, though, again, to his slight defense, he provides some skepticism when relevant. His characters say things like, quote, For we have reached the oldest land, wherein the powers of darkness range, which, you know, the darkness reference is foreboding, but it's also respectful of the 
power contained there, which again is just, I mean, that's just classic making things seem foreign and exotic. At the same time, his characters do respect that power and they sort of, the ones who interpret it as real and interpret some kind of spirituality as real seemed to fare better than the others. So I, I suppose there's a message in that. And so I think you could probably easily call it problematic. And then I suppose if you were generous to Kipling, you could cut that with respectful as well and maybe lightly spiritual. Probably the most relevant quote to that is uh, on 34 and it says, all kinds of magic are out of date and done away with, except in India where nothing changes in spite of the shiny top scum stuff that people call, quote, civilization, which I think is the most flattering quote that any character in the collection gives to just India and the experience of being there and living there. It, I mean, it's a direct call out against imperialism in a sense. I don't think, you know, if we're going to do the, the scales of justice on this one and put it up against all of the other more problematic things that Kipling wrote, I don't think it exactly shifts him to being some kind of, you know, defender of the natives of India. Um, but it is a direct sort of little poke at um, at the English presence in the, in the region and their imperialist effort, efforts there. And so, you know, there's that, though. Again, let's uh, let's not get him a medal for this uh, or anything like that. On to question three. The third question I wrote down is, and this is sort of a more literary-focused question, I hope those two questions off the top dealt with some of the more historical, sociological, cultural issues that surround Kipling, which I think, again, if you're just to Google, you know, these days, what is Kipling's legacy or who is Rudyard Kipling, these things would have to come up probably right off the top. I just imagine I read him in college, um, some of his poetry, which I did not hate in college. I thought some of it was okay. And then we had to read this um, Bill Dung's Romang novel, which is like a growing of age, coming of age, growing up story novel called Kim. And it was dense. It was difficult. But I, I think I remember enjoying it. I remember that like a lot of these stories, it was r a rich text. It just felt dense and lived in. And I, I think of all the things you could say about Kipling now, you could never deny his life experience and expertise. I suppose you could phrase it that way. He, he definitely put the time in and lived in, you know, imperialist India. And that must have lent him some sort of insights and, you know, whether they were racist or not or imperialist or not, which again, in my mind, they, it's pretty clear they were. Um, he definitely was an expert of a sense or in a sense. So, and there's that. At any rate, the next question is a bit more literary. Um, the one sort of direct literary legacy the article named for him, other than poetry things, and again, this collection has zero poetry, so won't deal with that, was that he employed and sort of used well indirect exposition, um, which the article claims is sort of a legacy for him for some science fiction writers, which I thought was unique because I've never read any of his speculative fiction. Anyway, so indirect exposition, let's, uh, let's head to our old Penguin Literary Dictionary here. They define exposition in the dramatic terms, so in terms of a play, and they say, quote, it is at the beginning of his play when the dramatist is often committed to giving certain amount, a certain amount rather, of essential information about the plot and the offense of which are to come. He may also give information about what has already happened, and all this comes under the heading of exposition in the narrative. 
And so indirect exposition would be the a similar form of that, but done without direct narration and direct telling. Instead, characters take care of it, or things are subtly implied, and you have to infer certain things. I did not find this to be the defining style. In fact, when I read that that was a legacy of Kipling's, I had to go back because it, it just didn't sound familiar to me. It wasn't something while reading that I thought, wow, yeah, he's a very subtle teller of tales, or he really establishes the settings and peoples in a really unique way. I thought a lot of it was quite direct. I think here's an opening quote from a story that I think sort of typifies his style uh, from page 33, quote, some natives say that it that it came, this uh, relic, that it came from the other side of Kulu, where the 11-inch temple sapphire is. Others, that it was made at the devil shrine of Ao Chung in Tibet, was stolen from a kafir, from him by a Gurkha, from him again by a Lahawi, which I again am sure I just mispronounced, from him by a Kutmugar, and this latter sold to an Englishman, so all its virtues were lost. And that is just the set-up half-sentence of a certain cursed relic that is in one of them, one of the more humorous stories anyway, that sort of density and sort of there's terminology flung around. He does definitely define things that would have been, uh, you know, foreign to an English reader and speaker of his time. Definitely some terminology that were probably used in India at the time, maybe even still used. I certainly don't know. Um, and so I think a lot of it was direct in that way. I did find the stories immersive, though, and I sort of mentioned that earlier about Kim. It is true about these, too. You come away from them feeling the expertise. I mean, there's a certain moments of specificity that you know either a great writer and a great inventor made up, and that's to their imaginative credit, or they just live that experience and they captured it in their writing, which in that case is, you know, a credit to their, I don't know, specificity and observation. Uh, this quote, I think, up from 41 hits at that a bit, and it says, quote, and this is a, about the Opium House story, which I thought was one of the more interesting ones, though definitely one of the more problematic as well. Anyway, the quote says on 41, mind you, it was a puka, a respectable opium house, and not one of those stifling, sweltering chandu kanas that you can find all over the city. In one corner of the house used to stand Feng Ching's Joss. Opposite the Joss was Feng Ching's coffin. He spent a good deal of his savings on that. That quote is, I think, maybe one of the best stand-ins for the type of characterization and just the type of, I suppose, in the you know sci-fi and fantasy reader lingo, uh, and I, I like science fiction and fantasy a lot, but the sort of world building you get, in this case, it's more just you know direct characterization of this um, opium den uh, owner. But I think that's the sort of subtle touch and thematic twist that you can expect you know Feng Ching by the end has already been passed away and he died and he's in his coffin being returned to China and there's you know meaning in his nephew who inherits the opium den and then there's meaning in you know why he was there in the first place and why did he live in India and so I think in that regard it's it does have some subtlety and definitely pokes at things without fully giving you an answer and coming off of the last thing we reviewed for this or from this collection the was that the tinderbox well it was fairy tales anyway and fairy tales and fables this felt like certainly a relief in that it it introduces things it felt complex at the right moments and dense in a sense 
and it did not answer questions for you all the time, though there was a bit of moralizing in some of these tales, too. There are some moments when you are just directly told, here's what you have to know. Here is directly what you must understand. It's a lot of summary. Um, and so, I don't know. if His legacy is indirect exposition in fiction. I'm unsure, then, if Penguin's Collection is the best representation of that, though... Yeah, there's definitely some to be found. And, you know, his skill as a storyteller in some ways does come through in a, a few of the stories, specifically in a few of the moments. I'm not sure if overall they feel masterful, uh, as the Wikipedia article would pretty much lead you to believe about him, but there is definitely some subtlety and nice technicality here. I'm going to cheat. Uh, you know, I'm solo podcasting anyway, so I'm sure this won't offend anybody out there. Uh, I'm going to cheat and combine the final two questions. I thought this would be most efficient, and the questions really go together quite well. In the Wikipedia article, it briefly describes how Kipling met Mark Twain once when he came to the United States, and they sort of just met for a few hours and chatted. Mark Twain is quoted from that meeting as saying that Kipling contains, quote, all knowledge. I'm assuming that's just a generous way of saying he's smart and worldly. And I'm going to follow that question up uh, with, and do you have to read Rudyard Kipling? In other words, what do I review this as? So, firstly, could Kipling contain all knowledge? From this collection, it's uncertain. Um, he definitely knows the truth of matters. And to me, I felt one strong personal bias. Um, this is from one of the first stories, one of the first pages even, which is that his chief criticism of India right off the f- top is the heat of the place, the humidity, the the climate of it. And on page two it says, Now India is a place beyond all others where one must not take things too seriously. The midday heat or the midday sun always accepted. I've heard this from many students that I've worked with uh, who spend summer trips and summers in India visiting family members and extended family. To the person they always complain about the weather there, and I, I'm not one to judge. I complain about the weather where I live in Charlotte, uh, North Carolina, and that's, I'm sure, hardly compares. It sounds downright cruel to live in some of the places and be under some of the heat duress that you are put under. Uh, to me, it seems just absolutely unlivable, and so I immediately respect that observation, and I think there's a good amount of truth in that. you got to find the climate to which you are meant uh, or to which you are paired. And I think in a less comical way, uh, he does have the subtlety of what we would call, you know, like great literary figures. Yes, I I think that that is ultimately a fair thing to say about Kipling. I can see why he stayed in some, you know, high school curricula for so long and uh, college, as I mentioned, college curricula for so long as well. There are a few quotes that I think sort of demonstrate this ability and, you know, observational skill. Here's a couple quotes on page 50. It says, quote, he used, the character, used to trot about the compound in and out of the castor oil bushes on mysterious, mysterious errands of his own. And that quote is describing a, a small boy who just sort of roams around these facilities or roams around this mansion this Englishman lives in. And that character, I think, is really well drawn. I like the mysterious errands. It does seem like lots of young people in that toddler, well, a little older than toddlers, not quite teens, but younger Uh, They seem to do have mysterious errands of their own. That's where the imagination takes them. Here's another quote from 47. A character remarks, Well, it doesn't matter. Nothing matters much to me. Uh, Which is in itself a pretty 
uh, you know, unnoticeable, unremarkable quote, uh, just the character trying to be blasé or even sort of, I don't know, fatalistic about things. But that's from the Opium Den story, Opium Den story. And it's just a re- thing that the main character repeats as he narrates. And it really does give the the haze, at least I assume, of an opium den over the entire affair. He sort of it goes lucid at times and then backs out and sort of does that. Well, it doesn't really matter. Nothing matters to me. Just I just need a, my clean pipe and sort of kind of goes. It's almost this ebb and flow wave like pattern in the narrative. And I thought that was, you know, it's good characterization. I thought the structure of it really worked. And then the final quote I pulled for this would be on page eight, and it's a rare instance of English respect and sort of um, delicacy, you know, a little, it's a little sort of jab at maybe some toxic masculinity. I don't, I don't know if we want to categorize this as that, but it's when a, a character watches another uh, male character cry and he says, quote, the major made no attempt to be dry eyed. I respected him for that. And that's just the brief observation that really struck me as British for some reason. Um, I don't know why, but that seems like uh, the kind of honor amongst British that perhaps even an imperialist would have. An imperialist, maybe like Kipling. So I think returning to um, Twain's really bold quote that Kipling could contain all knowledge, I think the Penguin editors tried to do him some favors in that regard. It's a pretty good selection of and a pretty diverse collection of short stories and works there's universality to these themes that's for sure and that shines through i think in nearly every case you have liars and cheats there's heartbreak there's humor a senseless tragedy is paired with addiction is there's apathy and so you really do take a pretty long walk through a lot of sort of universal human struggle and I think it does so in few pages, which I certainly appreciate. You know, short stories are something I do really enjoy, especially when they're collected well and present a diverse set of options. I don't think, I mean, look, it, I, Kipling is, as I already established right from the top, a pretty compromised author to read in 2019. And again, we have such a access of infinite literature and infinite authors at our fingertips. Is Kipling the author you must go and read? Probably not. You know, if you're doing a course or if you're trying to understand British literary history or something, then I think I can see why he stays in the curriculum. I mean, especially since you have to consider that if you're going to study British history, the imperialist efforts and efforts in India are like a crucial moment of the last, you know, 200 years. So I think to understand that, especially from a British perspective, Kipling then would be an essential read, I think, based on even these stories. And from what I remember about reading Kim, of course, that should be well balanced with native authors of India, I would think, and I would hope. I don't know if we have any of those coming up in the Penguin collections, but I'll keep reading and hopefully we'll find out. At this point, I've gone on for a preposterously long time. I did want to sort of balance this week's episode against last week's, which was very brief, so I figured this format would take longer, and it certainly has. Let's conclude with an overall review and score, then. I think Kipling, if you're interested in imperialist India, and you know going in that he is, for the most part, pro, and most of his narrators and characters will probably take on that imperialist point of view... I think there's a lot of in- intrigue and, you know, just good literary writing here. I think it's a two. I don't think it's a must read. I think you could certainly avoid these and read plenty of other short stories from any numerous authors and find a lot of universality and theme there. But I came away from these with p- plenty to consider and lots to ponder. 
and even you know even if he's a compromised author i think that was worth deciding for myself in a sense as well so no regrets in reading this brief 53 page collection and with those essential wikipedia imaginary queries answered uh let's wrap up this episode it's been extremely long which was not 100% the intention, but I kind of did want this one to run longer than 15 minutes, so it did, and that's that's good. Hopefully you enjoyed it. Next week, I will be back with some Dante, the old Italian poet, uh, and some Circles of Hell, which are taken from his truly landmark in the Western canon uh, work, Inferno. I have read that before. I don't know if Ryan has. There have been rumors and mumblings that he will return next week. I will not promise anything, and I'll have some kind of new gimmick made up in case he doesn't. Uh, But maybe he'll be back, and we'll get back to our normal podcasting rhythms. Anyway, it's going to be from Inferno, which will be fascinating. That is a dense text that I've just reread, and it has a billion things to think about and analyze and talk about. You might want to go and search every Italian politician between roughly, I don't know, 1100 to, I don't even know when he died, 1300, 1400, something like that. So, you know, go brush up on your, you know, hundreds of years of Italian political history, and you'll be fine. You can jump right in with us. And until then, we will see you between the classics. Classics.